Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I am Sandra Gutierrez. And I am Ali Hazelwood. Ali, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so Yay. much for having me. This is so cool. Listeners, this is, uh, Sandra and I are big fans of, of this writer. Um, huge, <laughs> huge. She is known for um, writing romance uh, with a scientific flair, an academic flair. Would you tell our listeners a, a little bit more about your work, including um, a new book? Yes. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, like I said, my name is Ali Hazelwood and I write like rom-coms set in STEM academia so far. Um, uh, by training, I am a neuroscientist. Um, and yeah, and my next book, which is called uh, Love Theoretically, is actually coming out in about a week. And it's set in physics, which is not my field at all. But, you know. Um, I tried. <laughs> that was exciting. Physics is hard. <laughs> uh, yes, agreed. Um, I can't wait to read it, though. Um, awesome. Well, we thought it would be so much fun to have you on the show um, and maybe talk about, uh, you know, some some of the science history uh, that, that maybe shows up in, in some of your books. So let's get into it. On the weirdest thing uh I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some sort of story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, reading fan fiction, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sandra, what's your tease? Okay, I have something more mysterious than weird. 
this time. <laughs> but I'm going to talk to you about how Pueblo peoples might have used their heads, physical heads, to transport 200,000 timbers that were used to build the spectacular great houses that remain to this day in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. It's really exciting. That is very cool. And also, I really appreciate you clarifying that you mean their literal heads. Because... Yes, not their brains, their <laughs> physical muscles on their heads. It's really cool. Awesome. It would have been such a cool twist if she had said the heads and then it was actually the brain, but like she had gotten us hooked. I mean, that. I mean, honestly, it, it might have been both. So Ooh, it's like a double whammy of sort of thing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so my tease is that I am going to talk about how wolves can help humans get into fewer car crashes. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I'm confused, but that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what we. That's what we go for. Um, Ali, what's your tease? Okay, first of all, your teases are so good. I am <laughs> feeling very inferior right now, but I will power through. My tease is I will talk about what I think is the greatest academic hoax in this century. Okay, uh, they... I mean, that's a pretty good tease. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. The past century, because apparently the 90s were another century. Yeah, very uh, rude, but true. Shocking. <laughs> Ali, it, it is so rude of you to remind us that, honestly. But but yeah, also, fine. like, you're, be, you're being like, oh, your teasers are so good. You're selling it, baby. Honestly. <laughs> it's because I think I'm overselling mine. But, you know, I gotta, I have to. No <laughs> such thing. No such thing. <laughs> Well, I have a rule that we never make guests go first. Um, so, Sandra, why don't you uh, you start us off with okay. Okay. people okay. using their heads, people literally I mean, and figuratively? Yes, absolutely. So, okay, um, I'm going to tell you about this quite sort of fresh out of the oven earlier this year study uh, where four researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder strapped 136-pound logs to their head to their to head. try and solve a long-lasting Puebloan mystery. That's dedication. I I know. I know. That's, it, that's grad school, baby. I, it gets better. I, I, bet the, I bet the IRB loved that when <laughs> they wrote it in the study. We lose trap now. <laughs> I mean, guys, you should see the illustrations and the photos in the study. They are chef's kiss. Amazing. Okay, but first, before I tell you all about that, uh, I'm going to, you know, in just in case you don't know who the Pueblo peoples are, I'm going to give you like a little primer, okay? So Pueblo peoples or Puebloans are an array of different cultures native to the southwestern of the United States, specifically the areas around the Four Corners region, which is where the states of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. Uh, three hours northwest of Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Chaco Canyon, which from the 850 to 1200 CE was the most important political and ceremonial center for the ancestral Puebloans. There, they built their famous stone and adobe dwellings along the cliff walls, as well as semicircular constructions known as great houses and ritual structures called kivas. The Chaco Culture National Historical Park in New Mexico is a protected UNESCO World Heritage Site. And if you go there, you'll see the largest and most popular example of Puebloan architecture, the Great House of Pueblo Bonito. This is a truly impressive structure that was the center of the Chacoan world. It covers three acres. It was divided into two parts by a giant 97 feet high wall, and it included plazas or squares, living quarters, and great kivas. 
It is truly an archaeological icon. So think Machu Picchu, but New Mexico. Now, there has been a long-lasting mystery surrounding not only Pueblo Bonito, but all the amazing structures throughout Chaco Canyon. Scientists just do not know how Chacoans built them. You see, they calculate that 200,000 timbers were used in the construction, but there are no trees anywhere near the site. If you Google pictures of Chaco Canyon, you'll see there is a lot of dirt and some bushes, but nothing you can make a beam out of. So where did the trees come from? In 2001, tree ring experts at the University of Arizona used chemical analysis and discovered that the wood in the Puebloan constructions was sourced from mountain ranges at least 46 miles away. The furthermost Chusca Mountains are 62 miles away from Chaco Canyon. Wow. Yeah. So from the creators of how did the Egyptians move those giant stone blocks <laughs> and the producers of I wonder how the Rapa Nui moved the hefty moai comes, <laughs> well, how did the Chacoans do it? <laughs> so just a reminder, guys, they had no wheel, no draft animals, so no horses, no oxen, nor any other type of modern carriage systems that we know of. Plus, Archaeologists have not found scrape marks on the grounds around Chaco Canyon that would hint at the logs being dragged or pushed. So the logs had to be carried by hand by Puebloans. So definitely a very hefty task. Now, just so you can imagine the ginormous task that I'm talking about here, you need to know that the roof timbers in the great houses like Pueblo Bonito were 16 feet long and 190 pounds. To make the mystery even more mysterious, because of course, why not? Add to that the fact that oral tradition, archaeological remains, and other types of cultural evidence make absolutely no reference as to how Chacoans might have moved the timbers. Now, of course, scientists have had theories for a while, so... <laughs> Let's and I'm sure at least one History Channel documentary has aliens. said it was aliens. Aliens. Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, I'm not going to touch on that, but I bet some people think that. So, okay. The first one, uh, one of the theories is based on a photograph from 1925 that shows young men from Suni Pueblo carrying logs at the Pueblo Bonito excavation. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find the picture. I Googled for it. I couldn't find it. So I can't describe it to you in my own words. All I have is the description from the University of Colorado Boulder study. Now, a little warning. I do not know if it's because English is only my second language, but honestly, I don't think this description says a lot, but I'm going to read it to you anyway, in case you can, <laughs> you know, paint a picture in your head. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> it goes like this. <clears throat> Uh, the image shows eight people for each side holding relatively thin cross poles at hip height with a timber laid atop the cross poles. That's it. That's that's the tweet. I, I listen. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty bare bones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I read this over and over again and I was like, am I dumb? Like, I, I don't know. But I honestly hoped it helped because I sure as it sure as hell did nothing for me. But <laughs> Anyway, the authors of the study say that even if this is the method employed by Suni Puebla descendants, uh, you just can't assume this is how it was done at Chaco Canyon as well. Also, a 1971 study found that carrying hefty loads with your hands is like the worst method in terms of ergonomics and energy costs. So, yeah, it's not the best theory. Uh, the most popular theory before this study 
was that 46 Chacoans might have used cross poles to carry the logs in segments of 35 inches that weighed approximately 165 pounds. The problem, of course, is that no one bothered to actually try it and see if it was humanly possible. So again, we don't know. But now, finally, to the fun part. Okay, anthropologists and physiologists at the University of Colorado Boulder proposed that the timber in the Chacoan constructions were actually moved only by a few people at a time using tump lines. And of course, here's when you ask the obvious follow-up question, which is, come on guys, what is a tump line? Okay, thank you for asking. I would love to okay. tell you. I was also having the uh, English is my second language moment. I was like, should I know? Should I should <laughs> no, I, I stab no on idea. Google? No, no, no one knows. It is really funny because that is that is very normal for us, like non-native English <laughs> yes. speakers is like, am I dumb? And English speakers are like, no, that is not a normal word. But anyway, <laughs> thank you for asking. I would love to tell you. So a tump line is, quote, a simple strap supported by the head that attaches to the load often in a basket, which rests on the lower back. The study says tump lines, quote, should be positioned approximately over the coronal suture line of the skull, because doing so aligns the straps with the cervical vertebrae such that neck muscles forces are minimized. Now, yeah. that sort of means not a lot. So I come with images. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So just so you can imagine what we're talking about here. Think of an IKEA bag, okay? Sure. Using it as a tump line would basically require you to use the straps of the bag as a headband. But instead of putting it on front to back, as you normally would, you would put it on back to front. So you sort of hang the straps of the IKEA bag on the very top of your head, if that makes any sense. Now, because the straps on the IKEA bag are not that long, the load would sit against your shoulders, your upper back, right? But in the case of a tump line, the straps would be wider and longer so that the bag would sit against your lower back. Finally, imagine the IKEA bag is not really a bag, but it is a basket. So there you go. That's a tump line. Uh, All right. Yeah. I, I, ho I hope that helped. I mean, it's a good example, I think. Anyway. Yeah. It's a very good mental image. I mean, everyone. I, I am still picturing the basket the same, like, neon yellow as yeah. the IKEA bags, <laughs> but... But yes, amazing uh, marketable term files. That's a free. Yes. That's a free idea for you, IKEA. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that this is actually the method Chacoans used to carry a lot of stuff across the San Juan Basin, which is where the Chaco Canyon is. They used it for for things like water, to maize, to ceramics, minerals, and this is from the study also macaws. I mean, just imagine like a basket of macaws. It's just nice. I don't know. Like uh, full of birds? Yeah, like full of birds. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. a basket of birds. It's like, you know, you know. Like, like alive? I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a desserts basket. Congratulations on your new book. Here's a, bas here's a basket of macaws. Amazing. I, I, would, be I, kind of I a, would love them. A rude gift to give unprompted, uh, a little yes. presumptuous, but I would be delighted in the moment. Then I would be yeah. like, oh, crap. 
What do I do? I, I think I got a whole my basket cats, full of macaws. <laughs> my cats would love them so much, and uh, they would be so grateful. So I hope I hope someone comes through and gets me a basket. <laughs> well, now of macaws. now you know, Ali Hazelwood fans, send her a basket of macaws. <laughs> Okay, uh, please. <laughs> Chacoans would have used straps made from the fibers of an edible root called yucca, and two or more people would have worn these to howl a log. So back to the IKEA bag example, what the authors of this paper suggest is that there might have been two people with the bags hanging from their heads, standing one beside the other, maybe four to five feet apart. And now imagine the IKEA bags are actually two ends of the same big heavy timber hanging from yeah. the straps hooked to the top of the Chicoa's heads. And then they walk for 62 miles. You can't imagine the friendships that are born <laughs> I'm, out of this trip. I mean, it's a Seinfeld episode, like a pre-Columbian Seinfeld episode in the making. <laughs> exactly. So my husband and I have a tandem and we got it from my uncle who... Uh, is kind of like the the tandem guy on the East Coast. There are only so many people making bikes for, for two plus people. Um, and he always says, wherever your relationship is going, it'll get there faster on a tandem. And I feel like the same is true <laughs> of being, being tied up together carrying a giant log. That like, it buddies will, will have bromances blossom um, frenemies will tear each other yeah. apart it's it's definitely the ikea of uh, the past you know how like <laughs> yeah. ikea is the the ultimate the ultimate make it or break for it. relationship make exactly. it or break it absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. there was only you, one log true <laughs> if you could, there was only one log and like it's it's literally you know when you have uh, I don't know. It's a very like popular trope in fan fiction when you have two people who are like handcuffed right. together. Yeah. Oh my god! And the, like the first proximity of it. This yeah. is. The, uh, I can imagine so many Pueblo love stories. <laughs> oh my god! This is so. My imagination is running wild right now. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I just love it so much. Okay, um, not to get your hopes up too much, but I am now going to tell you that this study does not actually tell us how Chicoans moved the 200,000 timbers over 62 miles, but it is the first empirical investigation on of how the ancient people of Chaco Canyon might have accomplished such an incredible feat. And because this was empirical, the word says it, Three of the four authors of this study trained for three months to test if they could and how long would it take them to transport a 132-pound pine timber over 15.5 miles using tump lines made out of nylon webbing and foam padding. Now, I will say, I seriously doubt that the Chicoans had some padding, so I don't know that if that is scientifically correct, but I, I don't know. No one wants to have, like, tump line burns on your forehead. That is not nice. Right. They, they made it easier for themselves. Yeah. But again, probably it was the IRB that, like, probably the IRB was like, no, we cannot allow you. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. we don't want to be legally liable, for sure. Exactly. For sure. Well, considering small breaks every 20 minutes and longer breaks every two and a half miles, researchers completed the test in a total time of nine hours and 44 minutes, walking at an average speed of 2.8 miles per hour. So great news. Yes, tump lines are a perfectly feasible method of carrying heavy timbers over long distances. 
Researchers say the tampons were surprisingly comfortable, and that is a quote. Uh, and communication, <laughs> this is this is what we were talking about. Communication <laughs> was key to coordinating the walk and avoiding the timber from swaying from side to side. So they had to actually like come together as a team and like do it. So friends to enemies for the win. <laughs> Honestly. Okay. I love it. <laughs> they also used a takma, which is a T-shaped wooden tool used by Tumpline using porters in Nepal to avoid unloading and reloading the log before and after breaks. So basically, instead of taking the Tumplines off, they just kept them on while they were on break and gave the, lo- and gave the log its own seat to rest, which is so cute. <laughs> that there is something really adorable about that. (laughs) I know. I don't know why, but it it is. Um, Given the results, researchers calculate that bigger 190-pound primary beams, which were used in the construction of the great houses in Chaco Canyon, would have required three carriers instead of two, and they would have needed around four days to cover the 62 miles between Chaco Canyon and Chuska Mountains, which, again, is the farthermost identified source of timber. That includes time for meals, breaks and sleeping eight hours a night, which I think it's safe to say it's more than any of us are getting right now. Though, to be <laughs> fair, we're not carrying giant logs on our backs, so I guess it's fine. <laughs> there are much larger, heavier timbers used in the construction in Chaco Canyon, so transporting those, the authors calculate, would require even more people. So to finish, strapping huge timber to your heads for science is fun and all, but theorizing about the method Chacoans used to move logs around could also tell us a lot about the kind of society they were. Previous studies by tree ring experts found that the 5,000 beams used in the construction of one of the great houses, for example, were harvested within a two-year span, which suggests that Chacoans might have had like large-scale construction events where a lot of the people in Chaco Canyon might have been involved. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated people to engage in these large halls. Given that Chaco Canyon is widely understood as being a ceremonial center and that the mountains are sacred places for descendant pueblo societies, the authors say that carrying heavy logs for long distances might have been an act of religious devotion and pilgrimage. Quote, an act of symbolically bringing spiritual power to the monumental center at Chaco and incorporating the blessings of the mountains into Chaco's great houses. They also speculate about the possibility of timber howling as a tool to perpetuate an, quote, unequal regional ritual-based Chacoan society. Given that the wood was being used to build monumental structures only the Chacoan elite would have had access to. So capitalism. Oral traditions. Bummer. I mean, it was it was obviously one of the theories. Oral traditions describe Chico and great houses as being built by enslaved people. So a vertical societal structure with a log howling lower class, for example, is definitely a possibility. Uh, and this is how you get your PhD by sticking a log on your head. Just that. So easy. That That is how you do it. That is how you do it. So go get a PhD. Do it. Um, Yeah, this is great. It also definitely made me think of um, Eddie Izzard's sketch about Stonehenge. She has a great bit about how far away the rocks came from and how, like, people wouldn't have even known how to get back to their houses after dragging those stones. I think, um, yeah, it's such a trope at this point that modern humans are like, 
how could why would they have put that much effort into it it's like yeah why do people do anything like i mean <laughs> i mean do you do you know how much time and effort it requires to do one tiktok and how <laughs> yes. if that doesn't get you too anywhere well. like too you ha- well like you have to do that constantly like people do this for a job yeah so. it's true Ten thousand years from now they'll be like they I, were insane i i do not know how they did it <laughs> Wait, they edited those TikToks from scratch by themselves? <laughs> oh my God, the scale, Shocking. the artistry, the craftsmanship. <laughs> I can't wait for, uh, you know, if humanity survives long enough uh, for um, somebody to do a PhD on like, you know, the the primitive methods of social media oh and video God. making. <laughs> I, I just pray to God I'll be alive at that point. I, I doubt it, but I I honestly, I'm going to subscribe to that from heaven. We we are going to be part of the ethnographic interviews. We're going to be the elders it's who true. share their wisdom. <laughs> that is so nice to think about. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. All right, we're back. And um, I'm going to talk about how wolves can help humans um, get into fewer car crashes. Um, Indeed, it's true. So, (laughs) okay, I mean, I'm still confused, but please, I'm dying (laughs) to know. I'll I'll tell you a lot. I I feel like, uh, yeah, we're coming to this from like a deer perspective uh, where deer are not the best thing for cars. But maybe right. we should open our minds uh, to the wolf. Well, and um, you're absolutely right to bring up deer because deer are involved. Um, oh my God! Wait, is it because they kill deer and that's why? Not quite. Oh. It's a qu- <laughs> but it's more. It, oh it's weirder God. than that. Um, <laughs> so anyone who's spent time uh, driving in like an even vaguely rural or suburban area. Um, knows that deer have a like preternatural ability to get hit by human cars. They're so good at it. Um, as someone who learned to drive in like the middle of nowhere, where it was like a bunch of country highways through farms and woods, I always joke that like pretty much the only driving skill I still feel confident about after a decade of living in New York City is 
um, my ability to spot a deer about to dive <laughs> into the street. Um, that and understanding traffic circles, which for some reason South Jersey can't get enough of in a way that the rest of the U.S. like really uh, doesn't keep up with. So when I'm abroad and I'm the passenger, I absolutely can tell people <laughs> what's going on. Um, but anyway, listeners might also recall that uh, when we had Mary Roach on to talk about her book Fuzz, we learned about like all the research that goes into you know, what kinds of animals are safer to just hit versus swerve away from. Um, spoiler, don't hit a moose. It will hit you back. Um, oh, that but don't is, swerve away from a deer. That uh, is like hitting a wall, basically. Just like a, an yeah. antler-wearing wall. Yeah, very dangerous. Um, but with a deer, it's more dangerous to swerve, generally. Um, the more you know. Good to know. So, yeah. yeah. Deer crashes are a huge problem. Um, there are an estimated one to two million crashes between cars and large animals such as deer every year in the U.S. Um, and like most of those are deer. Uh, it though I, my college boyfriend did hit a cow once, so oh it's my not God. always deer. Those um, are also very sturdy. Yeah, the cow is fine. <laughs> what he, I think our what? we need to start. We yeah. need to start because. I feel like cows are not fast enough that they would just appear out of nowhere. So, How- yeah, that's the thing. I, uh, he was, uh, my, my lovely, uh, college boyfriend, Sherdeal, was, uh, supposed to drive me somewhere. Um, and I got a text from him being like, I, I can't, I can't drive you. And I was like, uh, why? Very last minute, rude. And he was like, well, I hit, a cow with my car and I was like you're what this is fake but it was yeah, because like, if you if you want to break up with me just break up with me okay <laughs> yeah don't get a it cow had been, involved like, snowy and foggy so the cow had the visibility had been low and he had kind of seen the cow too late the cow was just like standing there in the road he did manage to slow down enough that like the cow just walked away, but his car was totaled because cows are big. So um, anyway, yeah, it, it can happen. Keep an eye out. Um, I, I love that the car just literally like probably gave him a disgusted look and then walked away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And her. How, how dare yeah. you? I'm just going to go exactly. about my day. Bye. <laughs> so, yeah, um, these crashes uh, every year, uh, one to two million of them. They lead to 26,000 injuries, um, $8 billion in property damage and other costs, and around 200 human deaths. Um, and in rural states uh, where these kinds of collisions are most common, um, Wyoming, for example, uh, wildlife vehicle crashes represent like a fifth of all reported car crashes. So um, big issue, definitely worth solving. And actually, the problem might be even worse than that. Um, There was a study out of Minnesota recently that basically analyzed the number of like roadside deer, etc. And they were like, we're pretty sure only 10% of these collisions get reported because there are way more of them than the reported collisions could account for. So what can we do about it? Apparently, wolves Uh, In 2021, a study in Wisconsin found an interesting connection between the all-too-common phenomenon of deer collisions and the presence of wild wolves. 
So according to 22 years of data, having wolves around means people hit deer less often. Um, and before I explain why, I just want to talk a little bit about why we're able to um, compare wolfy areas versus non-wolfy areas in a in an empirical way. Um, so gray wolves were delisted from the Endangered Species Act in the Great Lakes region uh, where this study was done in 2012 because their population had really grown. Uh, but then there was so much hunting that only around a year later they were relisted, um, which is just to say that their population, their wild population has very much been in flux in the U.S. Um, after like really taking a hit and then having some protections. And now it's become very controversial as to whether you should like protect local wolf populations so they thrive or whether like actually they might attack pets and uh, livestock, which they totally will do. So there, there's always kind of this this push and pull over like whether we're protecting wolves or actively trying to get rid of them or somewhere in between. And as a result, um, in a lot of parts of the U.S., you can kind of look at um, a lot of flux in the population from like one county to another and one year to the next as they sort of like reacclimated and then maybe got hunted down to almost nothing and then maybe came back. So they were able to take advantage of this and look at historical data. They looked at deer collision data in 63 counties, um, 29 of which had wolves from 1988 to 2016. And so they matched the collision data with uh, maps from the Department of Natural Resources that showed times and places where wolves were making a comeback. So ergo, they were able to say, do more wolves mean less deer crashes? Um, and it did. You know, the, the wolves meant fewer deers were getting hit by cars. Now, you might assume that's because the wolves are eating the deer. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and l listen, that's definitely part of it. Um, <laughs> after all, like deer populations have a tendency to really run amok if there aren't predators keeping them in check. Um, that's why uh, a lot of people argue uh, and that there should be hunting of deer permitted, even if like nothing else is permitted, uh, because deer will get like really sick and mess up habitats um, if they aren't uh, regulated. Um, so can, can I just interject? Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same for you, Sandra, but like I, I'm from Italy and we don't really have deer. No, we don't like I, I guess we do have deer. But no. um, listen, listen, like the only deer in Chile is called Apudu, which is basically the size of a cat. And that is like they're our so cute. They're very cute. They're Nobody's very cute. allowed to hunt those. I'll fight uh, them. No, 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 no. Actually, they're endangered species. Yeah, no, and every government will too, but me personally. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But but yeah, it's the kind of deer that I, I've never seen a deer in my life. And the only association I have with deer, other than yes, they will kill you if you crush into them on the road, is like ticks. And I hate ticks above all else in life <laughs> so i'm like when rachel is like yeah you we should hunt deer and i'm like yes hunt them down <laughs> oh my god for me it's the opposite because we have no deer and like they are i actually recently moved to austin and i am in the suburbs and here it's 
full of deer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they are the cutest thing I've ever seen. They, they are have very those, cute. This, yeah. Really cute, like white fluffy tails. And I'm like, how would you consider this like a pest? They are beautiful, amazing. We should revere them. We should feed, we feed them. Like we give them, you know, if we have like fruit, we give them the peels of the fruit. <laughs> so I'm like, but they are so cute. They Why are. And the you- thing is that, so like, and it, you know, I grew up in in an area with lots of deer. And the thing is that, like, if the population isn't balanced by a predator, they will they will get miserable. They will start to all be diseased and starving. And so it's really like to keep them. It's tough to keep them cute. Somebody's got to eat some of them. Listen, I don't listen, want it to be me. Listen, but, someone um, just call the Collins and they will take care of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's Listen, true. that's that's <laughs> what we should do. Just invite a vegetarian vampire clan into your town and that's it. That's what you do. <laughs> no crashes. Perfect. <laughs> yes. This is the perfect plan. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um and in fact, uh when this study came out, um, looking at wolves and deer collisions. Um, researchers also reported that Wisconsin's white-tailed deer population was at an all-time high, and that was resulting in habitat destruction, crop damage, lots of vehicle de- collisions, and disease uh, among the deer. They were not thriving. Um, and generally, that was blamed on mismanaged habitats, milder winters, um, fewer predators, and hunting regulations that were based on like very outdated population numbers back when deer seemed to be... Um, disappearing. So wolves eating the deer was definitely part of what was happening here. But the researchers found that that could only explain a 6% reduction in car crashes. They saw a 24% drop. So where did that remaining three quarters of the impact come from? The answer is, quote, a landscape of fear. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? That is... That is direct from the researchers and one of one of my favorite things. Um, so the thing is that wolves tend to follow like whatever the clearest path is in a wooded area so that they can move quickly. Uh, so generally that means like a stream or a river. But uh, humans, when they come in and build up a landscape, will make all these artificial clearings for things like roads and pipelines and rail tracks. So uh, wolves are known to sort of... Um, cruise along those spots so that they can run unimpeded. Um, And deer are known, uh, unlike many prey, they are known to change their behavior and location to avoid predators. Um, So when wolves come into town, deer that usually spend time near the road tend to start staying away from it because they know that wolves are there. So part of why this is important is that it shows that human hunting while often like a necessary stopgap in keeping deer populations from getting super out of control, um, which again is important to keep the deer from getting sick, if nothing else, uh, it doesn't actually solve the problem as completely or efficiently as having a natural non-human predator because having uh, another animal that the deer like wants to avoid out of principle (laughs) um, will do all of this additional um, prevention in in keeping them close to the roads. And actually, a 2016 study found really similar results. Like, I want to say it was 22% reduction 
um, with cougars and deer collisions out west. Uh-huh. Um, so it's clear that there is some like really efficient protection that that can be provided here. Um, Honestly, the power of fear. Yeah, I mean the power of fear. But like, um, okay, sorry, I have a one-track mind. But like, all the parallels with Twilight in this like study <laughs> are too much. Like the walls come in, and then suddenly the deer like go elsewhere. Like, honey, that's New Moon. Like that's how it works. Anyway, I'm sorry for the non-scientific no, never commentary. Be, never be sorry. Never. Be I sorry. love this. <laughs> I love this. I am. Um, the other thing it makes me think of is that um, I was visiting family friends in uh, Hanover. Uh, a while back and they have this amazing park that's like an old it's it's like you know in old uh in old novels would they like go hunting on the estate mm. it's it's an old rich person hunting very park. very succession-y yeah yeah <laughs> very also very, definitely very like Jane Austen too like the pond is fully stocked Mr. Bennett <laughs> um but so yeah they had this this big, beautiful green space that was stocked up with, it was the king of Germany's like hunting. So he could show up and pretend he was good at hunting because it was full of animals um, that had nothing else to do. And so now it's a public park um, and it's one of the most like beautiful community green spaces I've ever seen. And they have some of the descendants of the animals that were kept there. Um, They definitely have boar, which are kept in a pen. Because they will like absolutely mess you up, um, but they have a bunch of deer that just roam free, and they're like some of the most fearless deer anywhere because they have no predators to worry about, and there's tons of food. And once a year, they do have um, a hunting day, and it is like very tightly regulated. Um, the purge. The pur- oh my god, the purge. The <laughs> Well, and when I heard that, I was like, boo. And then I was like, wait, no, given what I know about deer and how like absolutely uh, plush this environment is, it's true. If they didn't do this, they would just have, it would be carnage. So um, the other thing, though, that's really cute is that kids, there's a day where kids can collect acorns and bring them and they get something for collecting acorns. And then the the acorns like feed the the boar and the deer and it's oh. it's all very sweet uh so yeah when it, when it was like and also we have hunting permits here i was like <laughs> how dare but no yeah it's just for the deer and because like yeah it'll you can't just tell deer to enjoy themselves they will they just can chill they they will just enjoy themselves to to their own destruction um i i do think that doing it once a year makes it so they can enjoy themselves. Yeah, so, yeah. The well, majority of them, and life. they remain so fearless. So clearly, they are. Um, clearly, Fine, the survivors yeah. see it as a an unfortunate blip rather than like <laughs> a reign of terror. I mean, if um, the trauma the trauma can't be bad. bad no, no, absolutely fearless. not. And if you I think, think about they it, still have the easiest lives of of any deer I've I've ever uh, come across. Um, so. As for this study in Wisconsin, um, it estimated that wolves can save Wisconsin um, almost $11 million in losses each year just by preventing car crashes, which actually more than covers what the state tends to pay out to people who lose pets or livestock to wolves. 
um, which tends to be kind of the biggest public objection to letting their populations bounce back. So, um, wait, is that a thing? Like, if a wolf eats your pet, you are entitled to a like a settlement? A bonus? Yeah, so a it check? depends on the laws in your state. I think in in Wisconsin, in particular, because they have protected the wolves, it's like part of getting people to agree to that was like, okay, so if the government is vouching for wolves, then yeah, what happens was, when the wolves eat I was going to say, if it's, if it's government policy, if it's like a program that's run by the government, I guess they have to have mitigation, mm-hmm. you know, the measures. Sense. Yeah. But so, yeah, the, the wolves uh, save us enough money to more than cover it. So uh, I, I am now trying to imagine how much my, ca- my cats would be valued at because... <laughs> On the one end, uh, they are my beloved, uh, and uh, I think they are worth millions of dollars. <laughs> but they're also really dumb, and so I could see the government like arguing that you know it's 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 fine, <laughs> like, it's, it's okay. Can you really blame us for a wolf eating this cat? Really? <laughs> um, yeah. Listen, uh, if if there are coyotes and wolves where you live, like it's it's probably a good idea to make yeah. your cat stay inside. Yeah, um, yeah, we we yeah, yeah, we don't let them out. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, and so yeah, the researchers also noted that um, there were other potential economic benefits that they hadn't calculated, like the lowered risk in Lyme disease transmission. Because Sandra, as you pointed out, um, more deer also means more ticks, <laughs> which is a big problem these days. Um, and yeah, I saw at least one researcher who wasn't involved in the study be like, "Yeah, if anything, they really underestimated how much money." is saved by by this kind of crash reduction um like this is huge so you know uh that's uh, a point in favor of um letting wild wolves thrive um and other researchers meanwhile are are looking at changing our own behaviors to mitigate deer human crashes um in late 2022 a study from the University of Washington found that switching to permanent daylight saving time would save more than a billion dollars in deer-related collision costs a year. They looked at several decades of crash data similar to the Wolf study, and they found that collisions seemed to spike when our switch from DST to standard time coincided with deer mating season, uh, which is when they're most active. The world's worst Venn diagram. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Yes. Yeah. Um, Deer are crepuscular, so they do most of their bustling around at dawn and dusk, which, again, is why crashes are so common, because during, like, peak commuting hours, they're out doing their business. Um, So, yeah, keeping peak commuting hours out of the dark can make a huge difference, especially when the deer are, like, super horny and hopping all over the place. So um, quick, quick, easy fix. Uh, And I just have one more kind of related thing it's only sort of related but I wanted to share it because I loved this study and I've never it's not quite enough for me to do a whole weirdest thing about it um so a few years back researchers were trying to dig deeper into data that indicated that mountain lions would change how they ate in areas with more of a human presence like subdivisions um basically recent kills of deer or other small creatures were more likely to be abandoned like quicker um, instead of them spending several hours actually consuming all of it, um, if they were in more populated areas. And they wanted to see, like, they they wanted to see what different aspects of kind of human um, interloping were problematic here. 
So they they wanted to check if human voices alone were enough to make pumas or uh, mountain lions skittish. So they decided to set up motion-activated speakers that pumped out either the sound of frogs croaking or the sound of talk radio. Um, (laughs) And the team was careful to note that they used recordings of both conservative and liberal pundits and both male and female voices. Were the deer, were the pumas listening to NPR or like what was the deal? Just, yeah, everything, everything. Though they they were careful to avoid clips where people sounded like angry or aggressive, um, because again they wanted they didn't want it to be like oh is is a mountain lion afraid of someone who's screaming mm. about um, about about Hunter Biden's laptop? Right, <laughs> right. They didn't they didn't want to know are pumas scared of someone screaming about those emails. Um, they wanted to know, like, are they scared of human voices? And the answer is yes. Pumas absolutely freaked out when they heard any kind of talk radio um, <laughs> and really reacted as if like a potential predator uh, of them was was nearby. So, um, yeah, that's that's all I got for today. But um, takeaways like uh, bring back the wolves. Uh, be careful when you're driving at night. Um, Bring on the colors to your town. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the solution. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. We just need some more, some glittery vampires um, in the woods. It Population does, control. It doesn't matter when you listen to this. It is true. You, you always need glittery vampires <laughs> in your life. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And um, Holly, tell me about this academic hoax. Maybe the best one of the last century of the 1900s. <laughs> I mean, it kind of like starts in the 1900s, but then uh, it, it moves into the turn 21st of the century. century. Got it. So you know what? Like, who, who even knows? <laughs> who's um, counting? Who's counting? Exactly. What is time? Um, it, yeah, it, it actually starts in 1996, uh, which... It feels like it should be like 15 years ago, but it's actually more like 30 years ago. Yeah. And you you are killing is... me, Ali. You are killing me. <laughs> I am so sorry to point this out. It's, it's very sad. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, it is a scientific fact, but it's more like a story of academic intrigue, I would say. And we love those. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's like the needy and gritty of academia. And, you know, the reason I chose it is that I, I sort of like took this story and I changed it a little bit in uh, in my book that's coming out, Love Theoretically. And I hope I won't get sued by the parties involved. Um, and if I do, um, I am so sorry. I am an academic. I don't have a lot of money. Please don't sue me. I would have said, I would have said we that, would help you, but we're journalists. <laughs> so well, good luck with that. But it is definitely the wrong fandom legion to to piss off. I will Ab- say that. Absolutely. So. Do not come for us. Okay. Please, uh, we are good people. There are worse <laughs> people in the world. Please focus on them. Okay. So the main actor of the story is a physics professor who at the time had a joint appointment at NYU and UCL, so both uh, in the US and in the UK, and his name is Alan Sokal. And his main area of interest is quantum field theory, 
quantum field theory, which I don't know very much about, but uh, because again, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm not a physicist. And physics is one of those topics that somehow always kind of like passed through my, my brain, uh, whether it was like high school or college or, you know, biophysics in grad school. I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna study this for the exam and then I completely forgot everything. But so uh, that was his main area of interest. And uh, in 1996, he wrote a paper that was called Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. Okay, so a lot of very complicated buzzwords and very cool terms uh, uh, with the very hard to understand meaning. And he, you know, what you do when you have a paper, you submit it to an academic journal, right? And uh, um, he submitted it to Social Text, which was actually a journal of cultural studies. So it was a little bit different from his field. He was a physicist and this was more of a like humanities journal but the the main the main gist of the paper was that quantum gravity is actually not a real thing that exists it's a linguistic construct and that you know it's kind of like one of the main tenets of postmodernism the idea that reality is kind of how we interpret it and not really out there as it exists, it's, I mean, and, and I, I don't uh, actually struggle with understanding postmodernism because I have a very like concrete mind, like practical brain, yes. basically. Yes. I'm not very good at any of this. My husband is in the humanities and like sometimes he has to tell me what things mean, which is always very embarrassing. Uh, but, you know, um, that's that, that's the, the, the main gist of the paper was that, um, yeah, quantum gravity is a linguistic construct construct created by people. This was a very chill guy, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, it's a white man in academia. So I think oh, we can all agree. Like everyone. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like most of them. And, you know, I actually read, read some art. Uh, excerpts of the article and it's a lot of buzzwords a lot of really complicated concepts yeah. um you know like epistemology ontological postmodernism stuff like that a lot of uh, that kind of jargon uh-huh. all the kind of stuff that you would put in your tinder profile basically <laughs> exactly <laughs> and uh, so he submits the article uh to social tax and the article is accepted actually I think the editor asked for some um, uh, edits, which is, I don't know if you guys, like, if you have any experience of meaning uh, an academic paper to an academic journal, like edits are always there. I've never had a paper accepted without edits. So usually, right. you know, uh, it goes through peer review, which means that the editor finds a couple of scientists who are in your field and are able to understand and uh, who are competent in your field, uh, they are going to go through your paper. They're going to read it and find any possible, you know, pitfalls uh, um, of your study. They're going to figure out whether the interpretations that you're making out of your data are actually legitimate or you are reading too much into what you have have done in your experiment. You know, um, he... In this case, the article didn't go through peer review, uh, but the editor of the journal did 
feel like, um, you know, based on the credentials of uh, the main author, Alan Sokol, who, you know, had these very prestigious appointments and uh, based on what he knew about, you know, quantum gravity and uh, postmodernism, he, he really felt like the article deserved to be published. Right, the right. article was published. So, so they were like, oh, this guy is way too famous. We're not going to card you. Get into the bar right now. Like, exactly. Please. Well, exactly. Also, it wasn't a physics journal. So like... Yeah, it was. It was, Yeah, exactly. And um, everything here is so sus, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. And to be clear, Social Text was a good, important journal for the humanities. It was a good journal in cultural studies. So right now there are a lot of like predatory journals out there where you can publish for money, you can pay for uh, to have your articles accepted. But that's not what happened there. Like this is a very reputable journal. And, you know, the article gets accepted, it gets published, and then three months later, another article comes out, um, this time in a magazine called Lingua Franca. And it's another article by Alan Sokol, the same guy who wrote the first article, the same physics professor. And basically, in that article, he revealed that the first article was a prank. It was a hoax. Um, He actually just made it up it's a bunch of buzzwords and and you know just made up things that what? he wrote down and that he submitted to the journal to get it published and uh, what he was trying to prove according to this article that he wrote was that um, a lot of cultural studies and humanities journal are culturally lazy and they are going to to publish all sort of nonsensical crap as long as it ideologically fits the type of agenda that the journal has and as long as what is written has positive references and like the right the right good- person wrote it it has to write like buzzy words yeah. so like this must be some good stuff basically yeah and you know another thing that the article did there were several positive references and and uh, citations of other postmodernist scholars so you know it felt like there was uh, you know kind of like a a tie with the overall cultural community at the time and uh, yeah that's that's basically that that's what happened um so at that point you have social text with this article out and then lingua franca with this other article out and the social text of course is like oh crap oh my god published it like this is our reputation and this was uh, i mean at the time i i was very young i I had no idea what was going on but uh my understanding is that um it was a very big deal in the Mm. sense that it was kind of like attacking an entire field, totally, you know? yeah. Um, and just generally, the the scientific uh, rigor of uh, of a discipline. So there was a lot of bickering after this. Just, you know, Alan Sokal. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just gonna say, just imagine if back then they had like TikTok, like the Selena Haley like uh, eyebrow debacle is nothing compared to this. Can you imagine? It, I mean, it would have been. I mean, I would have been like scrolling the shit out of it. I would have been. I know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the takes on academic t- TikTok and Twitter are like truly amazing. I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago. 
we had Wormgate, where someone basically tweeted that the C. elegans, the the main like model organ organism yes. used in psychology, was like a, an over overhyped animal or something like that. And like the C. elegans researchers were so mad. Oh my on god! Twitter. It's, it's the nerdiest imagine? Twitter battle. <laughs> Wormgate. I love the, that. The Wormageddon. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Can you imagine something like this? And you know. As I go on, uh, like, because this accident, I got, had like, there was a, a legacy and uh, things are still kind of happening that are on social media. But, you know, first, uh, I'm just going to tell you what happened right after. Um, there were, you know, like I said, a bunch of bickering, the, the original paper written by Sokal, the transgressing the boundaries paper was retracted. Uh, by the journal, the journal put into places a lot more like checks and balances. They're mm -hmm. like way more strict when it comes uh, to peer review now because because social tech still exists as a journal, right? It's still a thing, um, but they are you know everything has changed. They're they're saying you know we're editorially uh, doing better, but. I, I always kind of uh, found this story fascinating. Like I remember hearing about it in grad, no, not in grad school, in uh, in, in college still, mm -hmm. and thinking well, this is fascinating. I wonder what the players involved felt like at the time, especially the people who did publish the book. Like, were, were they feeling like I don't know? I I would have a lot of guilt toward my entire discipline and a lot of hatred for SoCal if I were them. But on the other hand. You know, maybe we deserve to be called out if we're not good at our job. Like, that, there's so much stuff going on here from, like, an emotional standpoint that I don't even know what side I am on. I mean, I was going to say, like, the, it's there's a valid point to be made there, but I still feel like the whole, like, publishing two opposing, like, uh, papers on these two different journals yeah. it was sort of like a jerk move like it, it's yeah it's a very jerky way of making a valid point that's that's what i'm saying basically that yes that i think that's how i feel about it as well and you know like i think socal has uh tried through the years uh, like he has tried to make the point that you know what he was trying to do was uh, to eventually improve uh, the discipline yeah but uh which is there, which is valid so and genuine i guess <laughs> hey. but like it's also like this guy's a physicist so like what happened to him that he woke up one day and said like you know what i'm just gonna do this and i'm just gonna fix <laughs> academia at large amazing <laughs> what and philosophy you know, major dumped him <laughs> that's the question <laughs> absolutely that is so true like I need to know what heartbreak is at the at the core of uh, of uh, this. And you know, you know what's funny? Like in my book, I have the main character, the hero, did something like this in the past when he was much younger than Sokal was at the time, and uh, he it was such a dick move. And like he has to kind of you know, as the years go by, he has to kind of like. Uh, deal with what he has done as he grows up and he's like oh wow I was a total dick and I made a mistake and uh, you know I, I heard a lot of people he has to kind of deal with that so that was fun too that right? sounds I, like such a good setup and I'm really excited to read it the, the other thing that this hoax reminds me of is that a few years ago um, a researcher put out uh, a paper 
I think it, it was it was some kind of nutritional thing and it was something to do with like chocolate being good the for you. The chocolate yeah. paper. Oh my God. Okay, get me up to speed it? because I, yeah. I don't so know anything about basically, this. Basically, they, they published a study on like how chocolate is good for you and they were like, anyone who looked closely at our data analysis would have seen that this was not a good paper. But look at how all of the... Uh, all of the science journalists ran away with it. And it's like, okay, like you're making a good point about how the media tends to cover and run away with and like misrepresent uh, nutritional studies, which are notoriously hard to learn anything from. And like, frankly, most of the overhyping usually comes from the researchers. And it's just that the writers are not doing a good job of like being like, uh, so like there's a really valid point being made there and also making a fake study doing press for it and then being like gotcha that was really weird (laughs) why did you do that yeah (laughs) if i recall correctly the main problem of that study was that they had collected like literally 30 like uh, dependent variables so that like they would find they basically had a ton of data on very small sample and they were like if we do statistical analysis at some point one of the variables will be statistically significant Mm, between the difference between the chocolate group and the non-chocolate group right so like it it was it was like yeah yeah no (laughs) no and it, it was yeah they did like a lot of classic statistical bad actor stuff that like definitely happens in studies and people have gotten their like uh, a bunch of papers retracted for but like also if you put out a press release for it I don't know I just felt like he really there was some entrapment going on there yeah (laughs) Yeah. it all becomes a social experiment and like it's it's not exactly it's just not that nice and it, it, it also feels like you know when you recruit participants for an experiment, you have them sign an informed consent. Right. But we kind of are the subjects in this experiment. Yeah. Right. It feels right. like there is an element of uh, are you are you learning with me or are you using me to learn something about you know the the, the system of peer review or the system of the way uh, like the, the way media talk about science you know yeah and I, I don't know that I am a willing participant in that well and then like all of the people who read that information and not that it would have like radically changed anyone's life because again like nutritional studies are notoriously tricksy and like right things come out all the time that could be used as evidence that chocolate is good or bad for you. So I think that was their argument, like, oh, this won't really make a difference. And also it's the writer's fault, not ours. But it's like you still conspired to put false information out in front of readers. So that's that. I don't know what ethical board looked at that. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I I am a scientist, but I am totally the kind of person who would like read a headline, chocolate is good for you and run with it (laughs) because I really like chocolate. Yeah, I confirmation bias whatever exactly <laughs> confirmation bias that's what i'm here for well um i don't think you oversold that at all i think that was great um and i'm gotcha. really looking forward to seeing the rom-com spin the biggest hoax in the history of hoaxes <laughs> is, is that is that, 
Is that the plural of hoax? I have no idea. <laughs> that's but the tweet. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> Uh, so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? It's I, a good week. I'm, I was going to say that because like, I, I usually have like my mind made up at this point, but now I'm like, everything has been very juicy. I mean, for me, the idea that people can carry, yeah, for 60 miles uh, that much wood is still it, like, it's insane. boggling. I, I know. the idea of, um, of the grad students stuck together for days at a time yes carrying. so <laughs> that is amazing yeah so <laughs> i i do think that is our our win for the day that being said i am very excited to um read love theoretically and see Yay. your spin on this academic hoax ellie would you remind um our listeners where they can find your work um you can find it I mean, I, I'm assuming wherever books are sold and if you don't want to buy a book, which is totally fair, uh, on the library. Um, yeah. Awesome. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.